Good afternoon and welcome. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier and along with Dale David from our technical staff, we are producing this fall colloquia to better connect our library community with the faculty at your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. Before we turn to greet today's guest speaker, I would like to invite you to be on the lookout for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website at least every other week throughout the term. Uh, where you will also find a webcast archive of all of our previous presentations on the SLIS homepage. Find our webpage at sliswebsjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Viewers can either subscribe to the colloquia RSS feed or visit the SJSU SLIS portal in the iTunes Music Store. Details on how to do this can be found on the Fall 2007 Colloquia homepage. This commitment to access is brought to you by SLIS, conveniently located everywhere. I would like to invite you to visit SLIS 21, the school-wide blog maintained by our Associate Director, Dr. Linda Main, on the school's homepage. SLIS 21 concentrates on school administration and development, and you'll find new topics introduced each week. And you can find SLIS 21 on the school's homepage. Today it is my personal and professional pleasure to introduce Kathy Dunn McRae. Her first public appearance after ending her near 11-year tenure as Editor-in-Chief of Voice of Youth Advocates, VOYA. Our good friend and youth advocate Patrick Jones is fond of proclaiming that you can't build a house without nails and you can't serve young adults in libraries without VOYA. In her life before VOYA, Kathy served for 21 years as a young adult specialist librarian in Maryland and Colorado. She is a longtime and recognized uh, activist member of the American Library Association and its Young Adult Library Services Association, EALSA. McCrae is responsible for shepherding VOYA into its 30th year of publication as an indispensable professional resource for librarians and educators who work with young adults. Her editorials, Acquisitions and presentations have addressed progressive concerns about youth advocacy and intellectual freedom of young adults. Moreover, she is a well-known and passionate proponent of service concept called youth involvement, which advocates for young people's civic participation in decision-making. During her years at VOYA, Kathy has uh, developed and edited a new Scarecrow Press series for practicing young adult librarians called VOYA Guides. She also currently works with young writers on a, uh, in a teen online writing community and is developing strategies for new ways to publish teen writing. So on behalf of the faculty here at San Jose State University, please join with me in welcoming um, Kathy Dunn McRae. For today's presentation, we're going to do a question and answer with Kathy, and I have some questions of my own, and I also have questions that have been uh, offered and nominated by students who um, I'm, I'm both uh, serving as an advocate and a uh, advisor for, but also in my own 262 Young Adult Services introductory course. So Kathy, I'm gonna ask you the first question and, and have at it if you, if you wouldn't mind. Um, in the very first issue of VOYA in April of 1978, the first editor, Mary K. Chelton, wrote this about the magazine's inaugural aspirations. Quote, we will use our voice to change the traditional linking of young adult services with children's librarianship and shift the focus to its connection with adult services, unquote. 
to what degree do you feel that that goal was achieved and how do you feel about that goal now? I think that goal was achieved, um, but I think it changed partway through. Um, young adult services has morphed into teen services. In fact, if you use the word young adult services, that marks you for baby boomer or older. And uh, younger librarians are really calling it teen services. And it's set itself apart from both adult and children's services. Although it is more comparable to adult services if you sit and look at the kinds of things that teens are doing. Um, I think most specifically in relation to they're making their own decisions about the services they want and need and in their intellectual freedom that they um, have from, in fact every child has intellectual freedom but as they become adolescents they need to be able to make their own decisions without adult supervision uh, on what they feel they need to read and want to read, their freedom to read, and their freedom to do a lot of other things as well, their civil liberties in general. And so that is related to adult. I don't think it's that librarianship talks about um, young adult services in relation to adult services as much anymore. It is, has come into its own, and that's really important to know. There are still libraries that have librarians who do both children's and teen services, and that really stretches them because they are very, very different models of service. Yeah, indeed. Um, I'd like to follow up on that just a little bit and tweak the question in mm -hmm. another way. Um, when you made the transition from being a practitioner in the field, both in Colorado and in Maryland, mm -hmm. um, how did that tra transition go from being a practicing young adult librarian into the editor-in-chief's chair? I mean, what were some of the excitements or some of the trepidations that you had? Well, one of the best things about my experience was that that experience allowed me to know what Voya needed to be and to become. I had been a reader of Voya since its very first issue. Um, Voya was invented during my library school years. Mm. So I was a Voya librarian all the way through, and I knew exactly what readers just like me needed to read. So that was absolutely effortless, and in fact, it was a wonderful chance to get out there and get Voya to do all the things that it hadn't done yet. However, um, Voya is owned by a company called Scarecrow Press. It is a publishing company that's part of a bigger company called Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group, and they are a publishing business. So the transition from doing public service work in public libraries mm -hmm. to working for a for-profit business was quite a shock. It was learning a whole different way of my business model and all of the um, all the great ideas I had sometimes couldn't be backed up by the resources the company had, or um, I was often reminded that I had to think differently about about my job than I was thinking because I was thinking as, wow, this YA librarian who gets to publish anything I want and do anything I want, and sometimes the money wasn't there for it. How, how does that business model now perhaps influence how you view public service? Has it changed that side of how you look at things? Um, it has made me aware that libraries are, are up and down with their budgets just like a business is. Mm -hmm. And it's made me think more about that, I think. But also, sometimes the motive for, um, for a magazine like Voya with a very open concept and a, and a very do-good um, philosophy can sometimes not be at home in a for-profit company. Mm -hmm. Do you have a different sense of uh, proportionality, for instance, that the market sort of requires you to adhere to. I know that's one of the things that comes up in class a lot. Mm -hmm. um, students have difficulty 
sort of prioritizing how they would imagine them spending time and resources uh, as professionals in the field. Um, do you get a sense of how uh, being an editor um, influenced your sense of prioritizing things and sort of keeping to those goals, or how do you feel about it, that? I was forced sometimes to keep to those goals, but actually the work of editing was so um, intensive we did our complete production ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I came in with absolutely no training that way. I had been a columnist. I had a young adult review column in Wilson Library Bulletin for years. I knew how to write. I knew how to edit my own work. But coming in and editing an entire magazine and completely preparing it to go to the printer was such an mm. enormous constant. job yeah. and constant, unending, yeah. that sometimes I didn't have time to think of other things. Wow. Well, that's one way of prioritizing. Yes, yeah. Um, let me go on to another question. This one is uh, from um, our 262 student, Rebecca Alcala. She asks, what direction do you see VOIA taking in the future, and does Web 2.0 have a place in that future? I think that's a really important question. One, one of the basic questions um, that the, the, our readers don't know yet is that VOIA um, is planning a subscriber site that will have hopefully some Web 2.0 applications. Um, but again, funding has not been there to, to do that yet. We actually thought we were going to launch it in 2005. It would be a totally searchable site. Mm. And things like blogs, et cetera, could end up being part of that. Uh, we actually spent a great deal of time developing it with the help of our wonderful editorial board of librarians of all types around the country. And then we had to pretty much shelve those, those plans for a while until the funding in the company was available. I know that's a priority of the current management of VOIA, and I'm sure that it will eventually happen hmm. so that VOIA itself will have Web 2.0 applications. Well, good. Rebecca was anticipating what you were doing a bit then. Yes. She also has a, uh, another question that I want to put to you. What are some of your favorite articles published during your 10 years as uh, Editor-in-Chief? Oh, thank you for asking that. Of course I want to talk about those things. I, I think the most, uh, one of my goals going into it at the very beginning was that I was going to get a lot more in there about working with community partners, working with other kinds of youth workers to look at the whole teenager, not just the, the, the part that libraries traditionally like to serve, mm -hmm. of giving them a good book to read or helping with their homework. And I really wanted voices in there of people from psychologists to social workers to people who run homeless shelters to um, health um, professionals in there talking with, um, with to our audience of librarians about how we all need to work together and how the library needs to have incredibly good connections in the community to serve the kids and so to send them to a counselor, for example, if that's what they need or to, have, to find help for a homeless kid. Um, and that actually was so long in coming because I, I would put a few blurbs in the magazine that I was looking for articles like that mm -hmm. or I wanted to hear from libraries that had really good relationships with different community agencies. Never got any responses. Mm -hmm. And I finally had to become very proactive myself and it all started with actually somebody getting in touch with me from the American uh, Psychological Association, I think that was it, who really wanted to work with VOIA about teen psychology and teen needs, suicide rates, et cetera, you know, teen depression and all that. So um, I ended up founding a, uh, a new strain or a series of articles called How Can We Help, which began only about two or three years ago with um, 
a librarian, Amy Alessio, in the Chicago area, interviewing a very well-known child psychiatrist, adolescent psychiatrist. Yeah, I've seen some of those. And I did that, and then I did um, others in that series, one with a, a, a teacher educator who wrote a wonderful book on bibliotherapy. We talked about that. She wrote about that herself very directly about how books can actually heal troubled young people and how to put them together with books. Um, we had a school librarian write about how her library in Wisconsin is a place of refuge for kids who are bullied, kids who are having problems from anorexic kids to kids who are abused at home, um, that she has made uh, an open policy and they actually lets the kids um, eat lunch in the library if they have oh. issues with going to the cafeteria, for example. So that, that series really started to take off only in my last couple of years and I would have loved to follow that up. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for that, for that question. Um, moving on to another one, though. Um, two years ago, Andrew Waterman was looking back over his own 15-year experience as editor of Journal of Adolescence, certainly among the more influential journals in our world. Uh, Waterman let loose with one of the bravest self-criticisms I've ever seen an editor make of their own field. He said this, quote, one of the most striking changes occurring over the past decade and a half has been the dramatic increase in the number of manuscripts on, on the continuing ever-increasing uh, number of manuscripts that, uh, that come from um, schools vexation with kids, with, from police and other government agencies um, about adolescence. An emphasis, in my view, he says, that is misplaced, unquote. Mm. I thought that was very powerful after editing this journal for 15 years. He's so critical of, of the kinds of voices that comes out of um, the research agendas. So I, the question that I wanted to frame around that, though, is after 10 years of editing the most important independent journal in our work, um, what have we, in your view, spent too much time emphasizing? Well, we, I totally agree with his statement and his bravery in saying it. Um, we, the society is really hooked on these negative stereotypes of youth. It, it actually um, makes um, the adults who are part of creating them um, abdicate their responsibility for dealing with them. And uh, I, I know that you and I agree on that point. And, um, For many years. Yes. And um, so that has been too much emphasis. Um, the positive youth development movement has been a real um, a good um, start in that direction. And I think I'm especially interested in the latest um, manifestation of that movement in the resiliency mm -hmm. movement, which mm -hmm. has only been out for, well, I think they, the research started 20 years ago, but only for 10 years has it really been quite becoming well-known, and that is that um, research shows uh, from longitudinal studies of uh, young people throughout their, um, who grow up and um, manage to overcome terrible backgrounds, difficult traumas in their youths, and have become flourishing and, and you know, adults who can actually manage in the yeah, world. thriving. Thriving yeah. adults. Yeah. And that is a high percentage, a majority of people who've had these difficult backgrounds who actually become very capable adults. And so well, what are we going to do with that information now that we've got it? So what we're going to do is try to figure out how, um, what it is with the people who flourish as opposed to the ones who do not. What's the difference and what, what has in, influenced them in their lives to, to move on and become capable? So um, that's going on right now and that's fascinating. And in fact, um, I, one of the articles in my How Can We Help series was about the resiliency movement. Mm. Um, I think that the other thing that we've spent, um, I, want, I hate to say too much time because I am a big proponent of young adult literature. The, the classic young adult literature and the, the current huge explosion of young adult literature 
getting kids to read is really important, but I think that we have spent too much time on just thinking about the books and not thinking about all the other ways that young people read and take information in. And that's especially Web 2.0 is a huge part of that. And we didn't even used to think that reading a web page was reading. It is reading. And people do have incredible skills that they develop in this current you know, wired generation, that libraries are finally becoming aware of it. And, and one of the reasons that they are is because many of the young librarians are of that generation themselves. Mm -hmm. And they insist on dealing with it. And they, they get the kids working on that. And I think that is changing. Um, and I, I've said before, partnering with other community agencies is something that we have not, um, we haven't realized that that is part of the solution. And so we haven't spent enough time on that. Okay, good, thank you. I want to turn back to another uh, student question, this one from Rachel Ikaza. She asks, I have my own personal Voya subscription, she says, wow. and <laughs> eagerly read it each month, each ed edition cover to cover. What would you have done differently if you were a new young adult librarian today, just starting out? First of all, my head would be wired differently <laughs> if I was, um, you know, not in the digital generation, which I am not. Um, I've had to overcome my own technophobia, and if I were new, I would be younger, and I wouldn't be a technophobe, and I wouldn't have to have friends of mine teaching me how to even think about the concept of text messaging. <laughs> but um, LOL, right there. L yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it would have been easier to do what I did, but well, I insisted back then, when, when I started, uh, I couldn't imagine um, not doing things the way I did, which was getting teens involved, and I'll talk more about that a bit later, about mm -hmm. youth involvement, but I basically just batted my head against the wall if I had to. I just made the places that I worked and the people that I worked with allow me to do the work with teens that mm -hmm. I thought needed being done. And, I, and nowadays, it's all over the place. They're doing it so many places. Teen spaces and libraries are exploding. Um, and it used to be that most libraries did not have teen spaces. Um, so everything that I was fighting for years ago, it's, it, a lot of it's coming to pass, and it's actually wonderful. So I would have been uh, you know, a pig and you know what, <laughs> having a good time if I was starting now. I want to probe just a second. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the reference to allow you to do what you mm -hmm. felt you should do. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I struggle in class with, with students is trying to make a difference between um, an employee, for instance, and a professional. Mm -hmm. An employee does what they're told, defers always to supervision and so forth, mm -hmm. but a professional takes on the initiative of knowing and learning and studying their, their area, no matter what it is. And in this case, we're talking about young adult services. Someone who would learn about the community, learn about the resources in the neighborhood, find out what's needed, apply their skills that way mm -hmm. and serve young people, therefore satisfying the requirements of their job description or what have mm -hmm. you. Um, so this concept of allow is kind of interesting to mm -hmm. me because it in a way sort of begs the question of pleading with your supervisor to do the job that you're paid to do. And so I just thought I'd throw that out because it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic that takes place in class too. When I, when I think when you put it that way, I realized that my first librarian job in Colorado, they did not, there was no way they were going to allow me to do what I wanted to do. And it became very clear that it was, you know, you, you know, your job's on the line. You're not going to, I was allowed, quote unquote, by a, by a very um, 
open-minded branch manager to start teen services in a library and with big uh, in a city library with lots of branches mm. that had never done them before and they were if I did it for a year and it was unbelievably popular yeah. I had you know kids coming in all over the place I had a teen advisory board did all the, everything that I I wanted to do because that branch manager let me and then when they wanted to um, promote me I actually did that as a parapro with my degree. I took the job as a paraprofessional because they would not fund it as a librarian job because mm. they said they didn't need a young adult librarian. I, I had successful statistics. My branch manager went to bat for me and tried to get me made a teen librarian, a young adult librarian, officially under professional level wage. Mm -hmm. And the library director refused to do it. Didn't care about the statistics, said we don't do teen services in this library. So I quit. So I have to say, I, I I did that, you know, the branch manager and I kind of cooked that up together, thought it would work, didn't work. And I left that wow. library, moved That's across the country to a library that I knew did would let you do be the services. And that yeah. was Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, yeah, I will mention them, which is where Margaret Edwards came from, yeah. which I hope your students are learning about yes, her. We are. <laughs> um, and I was, uh, I, I was lucky, I got the job, and, and I was often reminded by Pratt uh, people, you are sitting in Margaret Edwards' chair. In other words, I better be worthy of it, and so I was allowed to do things. You have a habit of do doing things. that. You have yes. a habit of occupying chairs that, yes. are, that are previously occupied by giants. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank. Well, thank you, Rachel, for that for that prompt. Um, moving to another question. Although the term youth development has been around for more than a century, largely coming from the field of psychology, a more recent interpretation of it includes a feature that we will now call youth participation. Can you talk about your own? deep relationship to the idea of youth participation and the role it's played at Voya. Thank you for asking that question because that's my favorite one. <laughs> um, um, I'm going to start by saying youth participation is a word I'm starting to use a little less because it really has evolved to youth involvement mm -hmm. which is I think a wider broader term. Mm -hmm. um, I think I must have been born with youth participation or involvement in my bones. Maybe that's the way I wanted to be treated as a teenager and I was just aware of it myself. But I came into the position thinking, how could I do this job and assume what teens want and need in their library and their services without asking them what they actually want and need and without getting them involved in, in hey, let's do this together kinds of things. and. I, that was my natural way of thinking, and I had actually started that way in library school. I did um, a, a senior paper, it was not equivalent of a senior paper, I guess it was sort of a thesis in library school about um, the topic was um, what teens actually think of the books chosen on all the best book lists by librarians, and do teens agree with the, the titles that are on best books for young adults? And, there's another list called, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the list, but it's done by the National Council of Teachers of English. Mm -hmm. I used those, and I actually um, then interviewed teens about what they were reading and what did they think about the books on this list. And the, the statistics came out, the teens, what they liked, the books they loved the best were here. The, the best books were here, and they did not meet anywhere. And this, this I was a student, so I came out thinking, I'm going to do something about this. this. This is ridiculous. Why are librarians recommending all these books that teens really don't care for? And why are they not thinking about what teens really want to read? So that actually started that. But again, it was it was a natural instinct. And so my first job that I went into in that library, I mentioned where I lasted for a year until they wouldn't promote me, 
was uh, I started a teen advisory board. That was like the day two of my job. Mm. And there'd never been one before. And all I did was start talking to the teenagers that came by the reference desk. And, and they, ride, they knew that there's, hey, there's a librarian who wants to know what we're interested in doing here. That's really different. And so they would congregate, and eventually they became a group. And they helped me plan the summer reading program for teens. They actually made it into a game rather than a program and did what they what they wanted and so every library I worked in four different libraries over my 20 years and every library the first thing I did was start a teen advisor group even if I was told oh we tried that before and that never works I had no problem don't know why it just it was easy for me I had worked in church youth groups when I was younger so maybe I had some of those skills that I brought into it well it's true that you I mean, know that youth or I mean religious organizations probably more mm -hmm. than any other institution in the culture uh, involves young people yes. from the very beginning in lots of different ways, yes. in ways that uh, maybe a secular community hasn't found a way to yeah. do it. I, I, there are a lot of parallels. I've talked to a few other, other YA librarians who have that in their backgrounds, and that gives you a lot of oh. skills that you need. Well, imagine. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they ask young people, in a way, to they're charging young people as they grow up to go out and save the world. Mm -hmm. They I are. Mean, it, with their own particular that's faith. That's very true. But that's a pretty big charge. And they're asking and they them it. to think about what they, what what they believe and as they're as they're exactly the age where they d figure out what they believe yeah. and then what to right. do about it how right. to be active about it in yeah. the world yeah. and I think that libraries aren't far from that you just sort of take the faith out of it I, I um, what I used to do in fact when there were very few materials for young adult librarians to use in programming yeah. um, there were um, religious publishers that would publish books for youth ministers and there were clip art books, for instance, that had great art that you could put on posters back in the time when we couldn't do that mm -hmm. by computer. Mm -hmm. And so I would actually, in Voya, uh, before I started working for that, Dorothy Broderick would review these books so that we knew about uh -huh. them. And I would purchase them and use the clip art and use the ideas for icebreakers and teen meetings and stuff like that. And um, they were all from religious presses. Mm -hmm. but, and I would joke that I would use their clip art, but there would often be a picture of a kid reading a Bible. And I would take white out and white out the words Bible mm -hmm. on it. And then I would use the very same clip art. It was a kid reading a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, what we charge kids to do, if anything, is to go out and maybe get a driver's license or something. <laughs> yeah. But everyone else yeah. is, is really yeah. loading up that that powerful agenda. But I think youth involvement today, I just want to go a little, a little further with it, that um, that YABS, I used to call them Young Adult Advisory Board, that was a YAB, now it's TAB for teens, mm -hmm. but they are proliferating. There is um, one, of the, one of the things I'm most proud of that I did while I was at Voyo was start um, a book series. It, the very second book in the series was Library Teen Advisory Groups mm -hmm. by Diane Tussillo, right. and she finally did. That, that was the, I couldn't believe it, but it only came out maybe two or three years ago, and it was the first book, the only book, on that topic mm -hmm. that exists, mm -hmm. and yet it's something that librarians have been yeah. doing for a long time. And you followed it up with the yeah. with the volunteer book too, right? The volunteer book was actually both first. The they first were they came out a year apart. But the only and the, the only, only one on both of those topic. things and li Huge teen topics. volunteer work yeah. has been Forever. again ubiquitous mm -hmm. in libraries for a long time. Yeah. Well, my students will recognize both of those titles. Oh, I think very very good. Uh, I want to go back though to the idea that you said you don't really quite remember why or how you had this bone or this sort of a gene perhaps mm -hmm. for youth involvement. You made a reference, and I, I wanted to, this comes up in class mm -hmm. too. The issue of is a young adult librarian born <laughs> or made? Hmm. How do you feel about that? I think or maybe uh, to the degree to which it, one. Um, or the other. I, I think 
They can be made, but I think you have to have a native love for working with young people. Mm. You have, and to me, it just it energizes me. Even the, my favorite thing about Voya always was getting teen submissions for the, our notes from the Teenage mm -hmm. Underground column. Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, I would get submissions from anybody else, and they would stay on open until I had time to really read them. The teen ones, when I I rip them open and read them right away, and they keep me sailing all day long because I missed working with kids when I was working in the office all the time. But it, it just being around young people has to energize you, has to excite you. Um, and I think you have to be sort of a natural mentor type. And heck, we could do a lot better training of people on how to be mentors. Um, that's one of the things I think that's, uh, that's important for people who are in a position like yours. You're working in the field for 20 years. I was doing it for 15 mm -hmm. and I moved into a different position where I was one or two steps removed from working with young people. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the transition too. Maybe mm -hmm. you, could, you could mention yeah. that, the transition from right. being in the field, working with young people directly and then going to and a then place going, where yeah. yeah. And and it was a lot less exciting. And again, the things that really got me excited were when I heard directly from young people. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of young people, let's go back to uh, another student question. This, is, well, this one comes from Ben Gomberg, who by the way is our recent winner of the California Library Association's Begun Scholarship mm. for Youth Services. Uh, the question that Ben asks is, I'd be interested in the former VOIA editor's view on the best collaborators for work with young people. What non-traditional community partners <laughs> are vital for creating relevant service for today's youth? Okay, non-traditional is, is, a, is a good word um, to make you one think in a totally new direction. Uh, there are a few cities, for instance, I know Berkeley, and I, and I'm probably more in California, right here, where San Jose State is, um, that actually do have youth commissions or um, their city governments have set up uh, a board or a meeting of individuals who work in all kinds of youth agencies in their city. And the young adult librarians are part of that board. Or, or at least the head of the young adult services would be. And there are, California has, is kind of known for doing it in a few places. Um, it's not wide enough spread. I can't imagine what city could not benefit from having that kind of collaboration among every youth serving agency in the city. And you know, libraries are city agencies. Mm -hmm. And it would be very, very natural. You should be meeting with all the other youth directors of every agency in a, on a regular basis. And those, those groups should also have teen members. Um, another non-traditional thing to do, which I'm very pleased to say was in the last issue of VOIA that I worked on, October 2007, I was finally able to publish an article on one of, uh, by a teenager who is one of the rare breed who has was actually a member of the adult library board of her adult of her library in Mesa, Arizona, uh, on a three-year term, and she wrote the article at the end of her term when she was a high school senior, and how she was simply accepted among the adults on that board and had a huge voice. She spoke for the youth of the library, and if every library in the country had a youth member or more than one on on their board, I'll tell you, library services would be unbelievably different. And in fact, very interestingly, I've done a lot of research back to how that began. And it was a, a, a president's conference on libraries back, uh, U.S. president's conference on libraries back in 1980, um, which was started by a National Resources on Youth Commission that is not even a, existing anymore. Um, met for the first time with librarians around the country in Washington, D.C., and they started their first thing that they, their first item on their agenda that they passed in that 1980 conference was 
get teens on adult library boards. And I think I could probably count maybe on two hands the ones I've heard of ever in the history of the United States. So that needs to happen, and it, and it is non-traditional. And once you have those two things in, in um, hand, that you're working with all the youth workers in your community, and you are working, you, you've got teens representation on your own library board, I think you could do anything. Well, I'm going to, I for one, probably speak for a lot of people when I say I'm, we're really going to miss that advocacy of youth participation, youth involvement. Um, there was very few issues in the past at least four years that I wouldn't rip out, <laughs> copy, <laughs> fax, you know, something. And the, the article you're referring to about this young woman who was reflecting back on her four years on board um, went right into discussion. Uh, in, in, oh, that's in class, wonderful. Um, because we talk about that as an important piece of what I, re I refer to it as sort of a, a horizontal integration mm -hmm. of young people across the whole yes. library, not just in the young adult stuff. I have to and interject so, something here that yeah. I just thought of Good. that I've just found out about. Um, one of my jobs was in Boulder Public Library in Colorado, and I had a very active teen advisory group who actually won awards for an anti-censorship program they did mm -hmm. that became nationally known. Um, one of those young women who was in that play has just become a member of the adult library board in that library wow, wow, now that she's wow. grown up. She's in her late 20s. And I'm so pleased. Well, where did this, there was so much more, it seems to me, for a lack of a better term, progressive youth involvement impetus in the 70s uh, and maybe winnowing out in the, in the early 80s. Why did that shut off? Where did that? Where did we make that turn? Where we stop thinking about that? And now it's new again for some reason. I think things just go in cycles. I know that when I was looking for jobs in um, the late '70s, early '80s, there it was known that there were only a few libraries that had young adult services. And if, if like me, I knew that that's the only job I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Do not put me behind a reference yeah, desk. Um, that's all I wanted to do. And so it was very, you know, Ohio was known as a, as mm -hmm. a hotbed of it, mm -hmm. Pratt Library in mm -hmm. Baltimore where I did work. Colorado, I was the first young adult librarian in Colorado, and it didn't work. So, um, you know, and now Colorado actually is doing quite a lot. So it, things do go in waves, and I think thing, things are up and down. There, there are some things that are I think about Paul Zendel's books, and here I'm going back to YA Lit. Um, they are some of the most timeless young adult books ever written, and that's why they still they still live today. And kids will read them now, and they have no idea that they were written back in the late yeah, '60s or yeah, '70s. Yeah, yeah. And the, that's the because there are certain things that are universal. And I I think the universal aspect of teens is something that people forget, and I, and actually. Teens are now, I think, more stressed out than they ever were. Um, they do have the kind of problems where their, their parents, their boomer parents, often push them and maybe become even too intrusive into their lives to let them have that time when they break out and become independent and need to not be as close to their parents as they were. Um, I, I see a lot of a lot of young people. The real the real achievers are pushing themselves and having sleepless nights because they have to know in their early junior year what Ivy League college they're going to get into and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think that um, in a way, sometimes I think parents of my generation and I am not a parent, so I, it's not fair for me to say this, but um, maybe have gotten to the point where they are not letting their kids be independent enough. And everything just goes in waves. And I was just sort of waiting for 
Hawaii services when it started to boom, and I will say uh, probably the mid-90s it really did. Mm -hmm. I saw it boom mm -hmm. with the young adult mm -hmm. spaces that started to flood in and to my to my column that I did in Boya. Um, I kept thinking, it's going to turn around. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go away because I just didn't trust it. Well, let me segue. That's a good segue to the next question. Mm -hmm. um, last spring, I gave a colloquia talk on um, the, the, what I refer to as the California gold rush, the, um, just the propensity of young adult professionalism to grow in California in every which way mm -hmm. um, in terms of new positions, in terms of some uh, mid-level positions that have been created, in terms of YA budgets, in terms of uh, outreach and different models. You were mentioning Berkeley a few minutes mm -hmm. ago. There are just so many ways that young adult professional librarianship is expanding. And so after my talk, um, our own director, um, Dr. Ken Haycock, raised this question, mm -hmm. and I wanted to put this one to you. Why is it the default assumption that YA conversations that we're um, talking about usually refer to mm -hmm. public library service rather than um, uh, eclipsing in, in the way that they do school library service? I th well, f I think the first main answer to that is that schools have an obligation to support the curriculum and and students who are studying, doing research, et cetera, et cetera, and they're not so much about fulfilling the personal and recreational needs of students, which public libraries really are. Public libraries do the homework help and the homework, the school support, but they also have the whole rest of the other kid to serve. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that public libraries can get away with doing things like video game tournaments, which they're doing now. The, the wonderful one in Ann Arbor that we covered in Voya with two articles about it has expanded, in fact, from being a totally teen-centered project to a family thing with all ages coming and teens and their fa their whole family is participating in these big video game tournaments like every Friday night or something which is wonderful I'm seeing that this you know very specific teen service of course teens like video games and then becoming a family event yeah. that they can do in the library is yeah. is really really neat um, so schools, they're, they're not going to do a video game tournament in the school. And so getting kids to do the stuff that they think is fun stuff doesn't happen as much in school. However, it does happen. When, when Diane Tusillo was working on her library teen advisory group book, one of her directives from me was to go to schools and find out the schools that do have advisory groups. Mm -hmm. And she found them. Mm -hmm. She didn't find a ton of them, but she found really good ones. And in fact, one of them that, that I found myself in, uh, wasn't one of hers, was a former public YA librarian who went to work in a school and, and a high school librarian, and, and of course she was going to have a teen advisory board because she didn't know how to work with, with kids without yeah. doing that. And she did a great job, with it, and she's still into doing that in, in, to this day. So it works in schools, but the model is not well known. And um, so read that chapter in Diane Tussola's book to find out how to do it is one of my questions, one of my, my um, uh, suggestions. And another movement that isn't well known that I recently found my notes for, um, I was on a, a task force in Young Adult Library Services Association several years ago to see if we could um, look into a model done in many of the southern states, particularly Louisiana, had a teenage library association that you might not even have heard of. It was no. a statewide organization. Um, and kids joined it sort of like a club or sort of like the future homemakers of America, the future farmers of America kind of group. They were future librarians of America and they worked with their school librarian and they became sort of interns in the school library as mm -hmm. part of mm -hmm. their Good. club. But Good. the club also did fun stuff. They did overnight retreats. They did uh, community projects. 
they did things that are similar to tab um, mm -hmm. kinds of, yeah. of work. And so that they were learning to be librarians and they were learning to help kids at, you know, do research in the library and, and all that kind of thing that you do in a school library. But they were also, again, serving, I would call the whole teen and becoming involved with how the community worked with, with the school and planning to become librarians themselves. It's sort of like librarians in training. And many of the kids who were in those groups went on to become librarians. There's a, a the only other program I know about similar to that that is not that library association is the Page Fellows at Queens Library in mm -hmm. New York. Yeah, yeah. Um, they actually have uh, pages that they you know, they identify yeah they yeah. identify as as people who might want to go into the career and when they find out they have to have graduate school to do it when they weren't even sure they were going to go to college but they actually have had a few kids that have gone all the way through and become librarians but you know it's i think that schools just haven't followed that model some have i don't think no child left behind has helped at all in fact it has undermined things like that, and we, well, we're we can, all shocked we can, that, that that's amazing. Yeah, that. yeah, but it's out there, and the teenage the the task force I was on in Yalsa actually ended up thinking that f figuring out that the model for the Teenage Library Association, which is actually huge in Louisiana and a few other states, um, was not going to work for a national group for Yalsa to sponsor. Yeah, that's harder, yeah. yeah. Well, I think the nub of Dr. Haycock's question, without putting words in his mouth, was that. Um, uh, why work is already rather marginal in the field, mm -hmm. and then to either consciously or unconsciously continue that and maybe further marginalize mm -hmm. our colleagues that work mm -hmm. in middle and high mm -hmm. schools and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so he was sort of begging that question, why do we continue to do that? Um, it's a good question, and it's a hard answer. It is. Yeah. It is. And again, you know, the partnership thing, I think if school and public librarians worked better together, there's one of the biggest uh, problems that any young adult librarian in a public library is going to have when she's directed by uh, the director to go out and make great relationships with the schools is she's going to find resistance mm. in some places. Mm -hmm. And other places they will build relationships with schools but there is uh, a way to work with schools as a public librarian and a way not to. Mm. And, uh, and there are lots of other options too. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well let me move on then to another, uh, another student's uh, question. This one comes from a, a student in, um, in our 262 course, the uh, YA introductory course. This one is from Susan Marks. She asks, do you see the role and the goals of the YA librarian being much different depending upon whether one is working in a school, <laughs> middle or high school, or in a public library? And if so, how or why not? I think the school librarian is still um, more a teacher of how to find information, how to uh, do a research paper, um, and if you real and well, when I first started, I actually wanted to be a school librarian because I thought it'd be cool to have the summers off. <laughs> and then I found out that school librarians actually don't take the summers off, or they take a shorter summer than teachers do. Hmm. They're back in the library trying to get it ready a month ahead before the school opens. Um, so um, it really, I think that if you really um, like teaching research and like um, you know, being a resource for teachers as well as students, that school librarianship is um, still the way to go. And if you want to be much more open to doing a broader variety of things, the public library is the way to go. It would be great to get more school librarians who are open to a wider view. Hmm. And maybe they then cooperate more easily with the public librarians. 
that's always been a that's a yes. an age old problem. It is, yeah. and I'm in, it's still going on. It hasn't changed a bit. Let me uh, thank you, uh, Susan, for that question. Let me uh, open up the Oculus, so to speak, of the of the discussion just a bit more. And I want to refer to the um, the Stanford University Center on Adolescence has recently been launching a new initiative in examining sort of a hot housing this concept, a concept called adolescent purpose, which is asking questions as to what kinds of purpose and meaning fuel or inform young adult hmm. behavior. So the question based on that is, what do you think are some of the meanings that libraries hold for young adults today and in the future? Wow, that's a biggie. <laughs> that's a real biggie. Um, there has been all this new uh, research on the teenage brain, which I wish I could quote chapter and verse, but basically the research has come out to say that that it's normal for them to be crazy <laughs> um, that their brain actually is not developed in a way that would make them do uh, less risky behavior um, and it shows you where teen brain research is, yeah. or brain research is, actually. Um, but it actually is, nor it is normal for, for kids to take more chances and to try new things and, um, and to, to, to make them you know, feel that there's something wrong with them for doing what's normal is, is absolutely not it. So I think one of the things that libraries that are open to teen involvement can do is allow teens to try out a lot of a lot of cool and experimental things in a in an environment that's supportive of that, and to also be there. Um, I, no matter where you work for teen, with teens, you're going to get teen problems. When I was um, at Pratt Library for ten years, it was the library was the main library in the middle of a city. Next across the street, there was a uh, a shelter um, and a you know soup kitchen, um, and I worked with kids from all over the city who would come to the main branch and as you get to know teens you find you'll learn what their problems are and if you're not the kind of person who can either help to connect them with the service that they need or just listen to them and let them speak among themselves and with you in a safe way that they know that you will not betray their confidence to a parent etc cetera, etc cetera, um, you're not going to be able to um, to actually do what that young person needs. And um, when I, I've had a situation in, in Boulder Library, which is a pretty affluent community, of a janitor coming to tell me, a library janitor told me um, one Monday morning that um, he had found the girl with the long red hair that I, know, I see hanging out with you a lot was sleeping in the library over the weekend hmm. when it was closed. And I had no idea that she was homeless. And she was one of, you know, my best teen advisory group kids. I had no idea she was in that situation. So I guess I'm thinking that libraries need to be much more of a community center. They need to be a place where kids can find um, the adult support that they need um, to learn, to grow. Um, and do just about anything, whether it's listening to rock concerts or whatever. <laughs> One of the things that you're doing, you're preparing, I guess, to launch off now more, uh, more specifically on is um, helping young people produce their own voice as, in terms yes. of being published and, and uh, in, in fiction, probably nonfiction too, maybe mm -hmm, poetry. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be perhaps another way to build meaning for them. Absolutely. They're, they're out there doing it already. Yeah, I think one yeah. of the Web 2.0 things that's gone on in this particular Wired generation, they figured it out already, how to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, there, were, there was, it totally blew my mind, a recent book published by a 12-year-old author um, called Sword Bird by HarperCollins. Now, you know that's a major publisher. Mm -hmm. And this young girl started writing the book when she was 10 or 11. And she was a very smart young woman. She's, a, in fact, a Chinese-American, an immigrant. 
Um, she learned Chinese um, was her first language, so she wrote a, a book in her second language, English, and she started surfing the web to see how to get it published. And she noticed that HarperCollins had published some books similar to that, and mm. she um, went and she, she did all this research herself, and at age 11 or so, not on, not just didn't um, figure out the, the you know how to get her book on the slush pile. She emailed the CEO of HarperCollins, Jane Friedman, directly hmm. with a few sample chapters. And Jane Friedman was so taken by this young woman, and the and the book had real promise. And hmm. she, of course, any person in publishing who's worth their salt can recognize a, a promising book in in about three sentences. Hmm. And the book became published just last year. Uh, this year or last year, Swordbird it's called, and it became a bestseller, went into audiobook and all this other stuff. And this is a 12-year-old, because th this kid was savvy enough to just go straight straight to the top and got the attention of someone who had the power to publish her book. Um, kids, are they're not sitting around and waiting for us to catch up no, with them. No, they're not asking for permission either. No, they're just doing it. And yeah. so I think uh, the I, I love working with teen writers. I always have. One of the best pro programs that I ever ran in a public library was a teen writing group um, that was taught by volunteer writers in the community, adult mm -hmm. adult professionals. And um, it was the most successful program I ever did. It went on and on, and kids would actually get up on a Saturday morning to come and do it, and they wouldn't miss it. And then they went into all kinds of other, other things from there. So wanting to work with teen writers is probably just I'm wanting to, to do what really makes me happy, um, get rid of anything else that isn't the funnest stuff, hmm. and go right right to the source. But they're going to be teaching me stuff, I think, rather than the other way around. Well, you've, you've earned that for the, the ability to just go out and do what you want to do. Um, let me finish uh, at least the, the prepared questions um, with another uh, a student, this one from um, the 262. Uh, YA introductory class. Um, the student's name is Rose Bright, and she asks, taxpayers don't seem willing to spend money on libraries in general because they think that the internet is a good replacement. What suggestions do you have for why librarians to advocate for funding for libraries in general mm. and for young adult services in particular, both when seeking funding from private as well as public funds? That is a hard question, Rose. You go, you go right, right to it. Um, I, I think that when librarians advocate for funding right now, they, sh they should do the Web 2.0 thing, first of all. They should go out there like everybody else, whether it's with blogs or, or YouTube or whatever. Um, if, you, if there is a great library out there, um, if, if teens are, are already in a, a wonderful library that provides tons of community service, say the one that has the video game tournaments and mm. uh, that kind of a library, do a do a, a video and put it up on YouTube and let people know. Promote it. Mm -hmm. uh, let people know that's out there. And in fact, why librarians, in fact, could get together with the kids and they all could work on getting some of the best libraries up on YouTube so that it would be a concept that people know exists in the world. And there, there are many places that have no idea that could happen in a library. Um, I think that having, again, the youth, the youth members of the advisory boards would be helpful. Um, there is a, a a young librarian in Michigan who was a sort a sort of a hero of mine who started um, a he had a state tour of a of sort of an alt rock band who performed in libraries around the state of Michigan and it was so successful because people did not 
believe that there was this kind of loud rock concert going on in a library. And the kids just thought it was wonderful. And he actually then um, worked to make it a national tour with the same band a, a few years later and actually happened. He had at least one, I think, one concert in every state. And then Harry and the Potters? Is that the, is uh, that the band? I can't remember the name of the band. I had an article in Voyage, and, you know, it's just not coming to my to my mind. I can remember the name of the librarian, which I probably I shouldn't give, but... The, that, the thing that really freaked me out about that was that whole movement, just when it was a, a, a statewide tour, was picked up by NPR, National That's Public right. Radio. That's right, I remember hearing about it. Uh -huh. And yeah, uh, yeah. it was in This American Life, Ira Glass. And he, Ira Glass, I don't know how, how many people are, are big fans of This American Life as I am, but he could not believe... He kept, as the narrator of this, as the when he was interviewing this librarian, and, and, and you know, you heard the rock band playing, you interviewed the band, I just can't believe this is going on in the library, said this the host, this radio host. He said it ten times. And I'm thinking... Well, that's our fault. You know, it is our it. fault. It's our fault. It is our fault. That stuff needs to get out there. It really does. Um, but but about getting the, the funding from private sources, that always, you know, there's a price tag to that. And I, I can remember feeling really weird. Uh, the new Seattle Public Library actually named their teen center, this, this very high-tech looking teen center, which may or may not be exactly what teens really want and need, um, but it's pretty impressive looking. Um, they actually named it the Starbucks Teen Center. Yep, yep. And I that gives me a twinge. Yeah. Um, it should be named after somebody who's really done something for teens besides just give big bucks to, to make the the nice part of the library, you know. Um, I, I, I think we have to be careful going there for the corporate sponsorship, especially the ones that, that want to have it named after them. Yeah. Well, um, those are the prepared questions. I want to just uh, offer you one other, and then you can you can uh, ask the answer the question that we didn't ask. But twenty years in the field, ten mm -hmm. years driving the big bus. <laughs> um, what's next for Kathy Dunn McRae? Well, I talked a little bit about the teen writing, that that's really what, what um, my favorite thing to do in the whole world. And I'm um, working with as a volunteer board member, actually, with a teen online writing community. And the teens on that are teaching me what it's all about. Um, they're running it themselves, and they've, quote, unquote, hired a few of us volunteer adults to help them make this online writing community become a full-fledged nonprofit. Uh -huh. And once they're they've done that they can do a whole lot more than they're doing but they this is one of the best teen sites um, they've won awards they've um, they have so many hits that the site has gone down a number of times from being overhit wow. <laughs> so um, overhit overhit that's, that's a good hit and uh, so they and they've revamped recently and um, the, the young woman who is sort of at the helm of that and has all her ideas but she's got a huge group of other teens with her. She's now in, in college, so she's probably going to age out of it herself. But um, I really, they, that got me so excited working with those young people that um, I wanted to look at the model of them doing their own um, writing online. There's a, a little owl mentoring program as part of that site um, where they pair adult professional writer mentors with teen writers you can, you know, you, you just sign online and you, you get paired with a writer who, who helps you grow as a, as a young writer. Um, they, they do their own workshops. Some of them are online and they're, they're hoping to do some that are actual live workshops, of writing workshops for young people. And uh, take the Web 2.0 concept, I think, and, and wed it to traditional publishing and see if we can publish these. They actually are publishable already. A lot of people say, oh, you know, teen writing is really not publishable. And I totally disagree with that. 
and uh, well, they publish it themselves in zines and things already. Yes, that's right. And uh, school newspapers. And school and newspapers, and, yeah. and, and now online. Web2 has opened that up so that it's out there already. And if you t it, all they need is a little bit of adult mentoring and support and putting, you know, giving them the right contacts, and it could become huge. And that, that is what I'm really interested in doing. I also will be doing a whole bunch of other stuff. I just I love to edit, I love to write, and I'm hoping to write some of my own stuff. And I have a young adult book in my head that I'd like to make in real. Yeah. Well, I think you might I want I want to give you a word of caution about referring to teen hits and teen websites because yeah. that could be like teen violence and then you get okay. In so all right, all right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, okay, well, I'll keep. On what's mind. a question <laughs> that uh, that you would like to answer without having been oh. asked a question? Oh gosh. Um, you know, you've asked such good questions. I don't know if there's there's anything left with my spitting head right now, but um, I, I guess I, I see the future in the young librarians, and so it's very exciting to be here in a library school. The young librarians coming into um, the field now are insisting on doing teen services, whether or not there there's room for them to do it. They're doing it anyway. They're like I used to be, and they're doing it now, but there's droves of them now, whereas I was just one of the lone warriors. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I think it's really important for for them to keep doing that. It is, and we hope to be able to be supporting and growing more of them. Um, thank you for being with us. Uh, I know that uh, you've got a busy post-Voya schedule, and uh, you're, this is sort of a whirlwind West Coast tour for you. But I'm very happy that you were able to spend your first uh, sort of public appearance. Well, and thank you for us. giving me this opportunity. I'm, it's been really fun. Well, okay. Um, thank you again. And uh, on behalf of the, uh, the faculty here at, at uh, the School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State University, thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye.